You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual If there's anything Jerry Falwell Jr. hates, it's those damn liberal elites. It's all over his Twitter feed, his contempt for those wealthy and decadent Hollywood types laying around their pools and then flying off on their private jets, cavorting with pool boys and personal trainers. Speaking of pool boys, Jerry Falwell Jr., the president of Liberty University, met a hot young man, a pool boy, at a luxury Miami Beach hotel in 2012. And soon, Giancarlo Granda, the pool boy, was flying around the country with Falwell and his wife Becky on Liberty University's private jet. Jesus may have gotten into Jerusalem on an ass, but we can't expect Falwell and his wife to fly coach, now can we? Less than a year after meeting this hot pool boy, you might want to get online and look at the pics, hot pool boy, and less than a year after picking up that hot pool boy poolside, and less than a year after jetting off with that hot pool boy the Falwells would put up nearly $5 million to buy that hot pool boy a hotel in Miami Beach. You know, like you do. And before you judge Falwell, let he who has not picked up a hot pool boy on vacation and then taken him home on your private jet and then helped him buy a hotel cast the first stone. Backing up for a second, Jerry Falwell Jr. is the son of Liberty University's founder, Jerry Falwell Sr., and apparently the presidency of Liberty University gets passed from father to son because evangelical colleges are hereditary asshole aristocracies. Falwell Sr., of course, famously blamed the attacks of 9-11 on gays and lesbians. Falwell Jr., just as anti-gay as his late and not lamented dad was, and anti-choice too. He's a family values, religious conservative, and he played a really important role in the 2016 election. Falwell Jr. was the first prominent evangelical leader to endorse Donald Trump, serial adulterer, and accused rapist. Falwell vouched for Trump's personal morality and Trump's faith and his relationship with Jesus Christ. Falwell's endorsement convinced other evangelical leaders to get on board, to jump on the Trump train. If Falwell had endorsed, say, Ted Cruz, which Ted Cruz was expecting him to do, it's fair to say that Donald Trump might not be president today. Now, here's the funny, funny thing we learned after the election. Before endorsing Trump, Falwell reached out to Michael Cohen, Trump's fixer, that lawyer who's now in jail, like a lot of people who worked with Trump, because Falwell Jr. had a problem. He'd had a falling out with the pool boy, and in perhaps a related development, there were some compromising photos floating around out there. And Michael Cohen offered to help get those photos back and have them destroyed. And shortly after Cohen... Did Falwell Jr. that favor shortly after Cohen may have come into possession of those photos, Jerry Falwell Jr. endorsed Cohen's boss, Donald Trump, in 2016. Yeah, things that make you go, mm-hmm. And remember personal trainers and Hollywood elites and all that? Yesterday, Reuters broke the news that in 2016, Falwell sold a sprawling sports complex that was owned by Liberty University to his personal trainer, a hot young man named Benjamin Crosswhite. Crosswhite was Falwell's personal trainer. 
Crosswhite, like Granda, flew here and there with Falwell on his private jet. And according to Reuters, the university basically gave that sports facility it owned to Crosswhite on Jerry Falwell Jr.'s orders. The university financed the sale. Crosswhite didn't have to put up any money. And then the university immediately turned around and leased back the tennis courts from Crosswhite that the university had owned five minutes ago. Pool boys, personal trainers, makes you wonder which gay porn cliche comes next. The pizza delivery guy, the drill sergeant, the inexplicably hot considering how much time they spend sitting on their asses, truck driver, makes you think. But while some folks are wondering what the pool boy and the personal trainers might indicate about Falwell's sexual orientation, could another anti-gay social conservative be secretly gay? I don't think this is a scandal about a closeted gay man. Closeted gay men meet up with hot guys and pick up pool boys and hit on personal trainers, sure. But they don't do that shit with and in front of their wives. Those compromising photos Cohen may have destroyed? According to the Miami Herald, they weren't of Jerry Falwell Jr. They were of his much younger, much hotter wife, Becky. The same wife the pool boy spent time with. The same wife Falwell's personal trainer trained personally. As unbelievable as it might seem, Falwell could actually be something worse in the eyes of his fellow right-wingers and Trump supporters and MAGA hat-wearing assholes. Based on all of the evidence at hand, I don't think Jerry Falwell Jr. is secretly gay. And you know what? Thank God. We got stuck with Aaron Shock. We don't deserve Jerry Falwell Jr. No. Picking up pool boys with the wife, sharing a personal trainer with the wife, sending out compromising photos of the wife... That's not how closeted gay men roll. That's how straight male cuckolds roll. And there's nothing wrong with being a cuck. And again, we don't know for sure if Jerry Falwell Jr. is a cuck. But try saying there's nothing wrong with being a cuck to Jerry Falwell Jr.'s buddies on the right, where cuck has become the go-to insult, the term hurled in the faces of Democrats, liberals, progressives, even Republicans and right-wingers who deviate an inch from Trump's policies and his bigotries. There's nothing worse you can be called on the right than a cuck. How ironic would it be if Donald Trump owed his presidency to one? All right, coming up on today's show on the micro free edition of the Savage Lovecast, lots of your cues, lots of my A's. And Paul Sullivan, money columnist for the New York Times, joins us to talk prenups and marriage. And on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast, Dr. Jen Gunter is back to talk with us about vaginas, 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 and her new book, The Vagina Bible. All that coming up on today's show. Hey, Dan. I'm a gay 29-year-old, so I don't really go to Pride very often. I went to Pride this year, and uh, while I was dancing, something I saw just took me back so much that I could barely contain myself. And it was mostly that Pride is supposed to be like a thing, in my opinion, that uh, really is like a place for people to show their spirit and their, their acceptance and love of who they are. And I think that families should be able to go. I think straight people should be able to take their kids to show that gay people are just normal people. Basically, I was dancing and <laughs> I noticed like five feet away from me, there was like a circle of men around a guy who was eating another guy out. And <laughs> I was, that was just so ridiculous in my mind and I just couldn't believe that you know, and I'm I'm of a lot of demographics. I'm black and I'm white, and it feels just like I always see someone making me look bad, whether it's a white person or a black person. <laughs> but when I saw gay people doing it, I was just like, it was like there was nowhere to run from the obscenities. 
If you could just speak to that so that like some people can hear it, I feel like it needs to be said. I feel like it needs to be like a bell that's rung for gay people. Like, hey, keep your sex acts indoors. You know, like wear all the leather you want, show all the skin you want. But as far as like sex acts, like some people want to bring their kids to Pride. I know straight couples who have kids and they're progressive and they want to bring their kids there to like learn about Pride. I'm not so worried about the judgment as just like impact this will actually have on people. So Alex Smith, who is this CrossFit professional athlete, you can follow him on Instagram. A lot of people were already following him on Instagram. He has three, 400,000 followers and he's very famous in CrossFit circles as a professional CrossFit athlete. He's also fucking gorgeous. Just came out as gay, posted this heartfelt video to his Instagram account coming out as gay. He cries in it. I got a text message from a friend because someone took a screenshot of Alex Smith in this heartbreaking, lovely, tender, vulnerable video with tears in his eyes and made a meme and a mean joke out of it and posted it on the internet. And the person who did that was a gay guy. And my friend was really upset because, because why do people have to be such fucking assholes? And we talked for a minute. We just texted back and forth for a minute because it's always so disappointing when it's a gay person who's being an asshole. And we have to remind ourselves, of course, that some of everybody's an asshole. We expect better of gay people, our fellow gay people sometimes. And then we are disappointed when our fellow gay people prove that which we should assume to be true, that the same significant percentage of them, us, are assholes, just like the same significant percentage of Everybody fucking else. But why is it so crushing when gay people are awful? Well, I guess because we're all implicated somehow because of the way minorities are treated in this country, of whatever stripe they happen to be. But also we want to think well of ourselves and we want to think we're pretty good. And so we project that, hey, I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good gay person onto all of the gay people. And when they prove themselves to be jerks at the same rate as everybody else, we take it personally. All right, you were at Pride. There was a little scrum of gay men in the middle of wherever it was that people were dancing. You say there was a little circle and there was somebody in the middle of that circle. As you got close enough, you could see that the someone in the middle of that circle was eating somebody else out, eating some dude's ass, I assume. And you're mad and you're upset because what about the straight people? And what about the kids who come to Pride? Pride is about sexuality. Pride is about people celebrating their sexuality. Sexuality and sexual expression has always been a part of Pride, always had a place at Pride. And so I'm less upset about this than you are, I think. But I get why you're upset. I get why you took that personally because my friend and I took it personally when that asshole gay dude made fun of Alex Smith for coming out in the way that they did. But I got to say, when you come to Pride, you're going to see some people being sexual. And the line you want to draw, no public sex acts. Other people want to draw a line that says no leather, no drag, no puppy masks. A a lot of things that you would allow, others would not allow. So the drawing of those lines about expression at an event like Pride are inherently problematic. And it would be my advice to parents of small children who want to go to Pride Not to crowd onto the dance floor, not to approach scrums of men, because that's where this sort of thing, ass-eating, is highly likely to happen. And while the guys didn't have 
a reasonable expectation of privacy by forming a little scrum, by taking it onto a crowded dance area. They were creating a little site-specific level of privacy. I doubt very much that people are dancing with their three-year-olds in the middle of giant scrums of gay men at a pride celebration. And if they are, well, they run the risk of seeing gay men grinding on each other or worse or better, depending on your perspective. And people have been screaming at the folks at Pride who are too sexual or too kinky or too undressed or too whatever else to knock it off and they're making us all look bad since the very first Pride parade 49 years ago. And the people who say this, oh, it's making us all look bad. It's going to set the queer rights movement back. Well, political observers, sociologists, commentators, everyone has acknowledged that the LGBT civil rights movement got further faster than most other social justice movements. And that's because of our secret weapon. We are randomly distributed throughout the population. We are born into mostly straight families. And that helped advance the cause. So it seems that these things can't exist simultaneously. Oh, these people who are being filthy birds at pride are going to set us back. And we are at once making remarkable advances at historic speeds. If the former... All the guys misbehaving at Pride, all the other people misbehaving at Pride, some of the straight people who come to Pride to misbehave, and I'm using misbehave in quotes there, we're going to set us back? Well, we couldn't have made the advances that we've made. So it's really not the threat that some people think it is. And we're just going to have to uh, – it's one of the things that Pride exists to promote. All right, we're just going to have to learn to live with it, get used to it, tolerate it. There's always going to be some folks at Pride – we're getting dirty on the dance floor or in the corners or in the dark. And that kind of sexual freedom is part of what we're celebrating. Hi, Dan. So this weekend, I met a guy who's in town just for the weekend. And um, we ended up going home together and having easier sex than I've ever had before. We had really great communication and we got to really act out some things that I've been imagining in my head for a while. It was really great, but it was so temporary and so one night sandy that like the few days later, I've just been feeling really dejected. Like maybe because some of the stuff we did was kind of degrading towards me. And so I'm wondering, you know, I'm a single woman and I'd like to incorporate this kind of sex into my single lifestyle, but not really interested in having a boyfriend or even really you know, getting involved in anything too emotionally intimate. How do you kind of manage that feeling of like not feeling totally degraded after having this kind of sex with also a really single lifestyle? By reminding yourself that this is role play, this is cops and robbers for grownups with your pants off and orgasms. And you are choosing to play this out. You are choosing with this person that you had a good feeling about and that you trusted in the moment to engage in this kind of scripted drama. So while you're going through these degrading motions, you're in control and you're in charge and it can end when you decide that it ends. And if your partner sticks to the parameters to what you negotiated and agreed to in advance, you are in control. And so it's not degradation. It's a ritual performance. It's catharsis. And it provides you with some release and it turns you the fuck on. And you want to have in your life the things that turn you on. Part of what may be making you feel a little squicky after the fact about this is that you did these things with someone that you're not going to see again. 
And that's really where your question goes. How do you incorporate these things when you're not wanting to have an intimate relationship, when you're not wanting to have a love connection into the sex you're having without having then to feel bad about it? And it's almost like you were suggesting that if this had happened in the context of a committed loving relationship, that that would be exculpatory somehow. That the fact that the that it's the combo of this kind of kinky sex and casual sex, that those things together make this worse. That the halo of, oh, but this is the way my lover and I in the context of our committed loving relationship connect sexually, that makes this stuff okay. This stuff can be okay in the context of a very short-term relationship. You came into contact with this guy. It sounds like you had an extended conversation with this guy before you met up. You met up. You had a good feeling about him. You had a great one-night stand. Rather than allowing the culture to convince you that you have to frame that as somehow sleazy, not the sex that you had, but the briefness of that relationship that you had, because it was brief, because it wasn't long-term, because it's not open-ended, because you're not dating, because he's not your husband, it makes it all not okay, you don't have to buy into that. You have to buy into the shit that I'm selling here. You had a successful short-term relationship with this guy. You had sex that turned you on. You felt good about him and you felt safe enough with him to open yourself up in this way and explore this part of your sexuality. And you had a positive experience. Yahtzee, you won. Do your legwork in advance, always, with people that you're going to engage in this kind of sex with. And even if they're only in your life for a night, if you had fun, they had fun, nobody got hurt, and you never see them again, it was a successful relationship. And you don't need love and commitment and long-term to legitimize your desires or make the things that you did with this guy or you might do with other guys that you meet in the future that you have these brief flings with good and decent. You created more joy in the world for you and for that guy. The one piece that may have been missing for you is aftercare. When you do serious role play, when you get into humiliation or degradation, the kinksters talk about this. It's important after the scene for the person who topped you or humiliated you or degraded you or tied you up and called you names to shower you with affection, to, to hold you, to, to, to connect and, and bring you back out of it. I don't want to say comfort you, but it is a kind of a comfort where you let go of both roles, where you let go of your submission and they let go of their dominance and you just reconnect as equals and human beings. Sometimes when people have a kinky sex date with someone that they're not going to see again, the intimacy of aftercare feels like it might be misleading. Like the person who's providing you with that aftercare might wind up feeling like they're making you a promise about an emotional commitment that they don't want to make and that you didn't ask for and that you, caller, didn't want either. So part of the thing you want to talk about in advance of a scene like this with someone that you're not going to see again or someone you're going to hang out with for a weekend or an evening is that aftercare is important and you don't misinterpret aftercare to mean that they have to see you again ever or that they're your boyfriend now or anything. But after this play, after this scene, if we're going to do this kind of degradation, humiliation, power exchange-y kind of play, I'm going to need some time being cuddled, being held, and us being nice and decent to each other. We just can't blow our loads in the context of this 
degradation scene and then pull our pants on and leave. And you can make that a condition of doing this kind of play with anybody, whether you're going to do it with them on and off for 50 years when you're married to them forever, or you're going to do that one Saturday night in New York when you made a date to do that. You can make it a condition. And I think if you get a little bit of aftercare after the play, you'll feel less conflicted after they leave. Hi, Dan. I am calling because I was hoping you could give a little primer on money in relationships as people get married. I'm 26 and my boyfriend's 28 and we're looking to get married, which is great. I have a much higher uh, net worth, much higher salary than he does. Um, And we've been sharing finances for two years. And the way we currently do it is we have separate accounts that we both contribute to a joint account from which everything is that we have as shared finances is purchased. And it works really well. But as we look to getting married, he is talking about combining our finances completely. And this makes sense because there are things like retirement savings and insurance and big purchases that he will not continue to be able to make on his own, but would benefit me to have uh, in a partner. Both my parents are divorced. They were long-term single people. I have multiple other adults in my life who are like that. So I don't have a lot of role models for people who have combined finances. He's completely fine sharing a um, or signing a prenup and is open to changing, you know, how we do our money. But that is his input so far. And I was just hoping that you and maybe your listeners could talk about a couple different ways married people share money. If it is just like put it all in one big pot and that's the way that makes sense, you know, that's most practical or just some different ideas. Neither one of us has any debt and we don't plan to have children. So we're in a pretty good financially stable position. Um, And I just want to have a couple ideas about what to do as we make this big life decision together. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Paul Sullivan is the Wealth Matters columnist for the New York Times and the author of The Thin Green Line, The Money Secrets of the Super Wealthy. Hey, Paul, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on today, Dan. I appreciate it. Thank you. I understand you're on vacation and you took a moment away and we really appreciate it because I have no idea what to tell her. She asked for a primer on money and relationships when people get married. I'm sure you could talk for three hours about that, but can you give us the short version? What do people need to know about finances before they marry? (laughs) Hey, you know what? She's ahead of the game by even thinking about this. So let's give her credit for that. You know, even though it sounds like it comes from a place of, of fear or at least concern, most people kind of stumble blithely into a, a relationship, let alone marriage, without even tackling these issues. But, you know, from my experience, you know, from the column, from the book, from a lot of the, the research I've done uh, independently, I mean, conversations like this about money aren't about money. They're never about money. And you hmm. can sort of, you, some of it, you can tell the way she frames it, it's about concern. It's about, you know, security. She says that she doesn't have any good role models uh, around shared finances because her, her parents are, are divorced. Uh, you know, money, money at the end of the day is just a means of exchange. If we have more money, we have more choices. If we have less money, we don't have that many choices. But where money screws us up is when it has all of this psychological baggage attached to it. And and I'm not saying that in any disparaging way to the caller. I I have psychological baggage around money. You do too. We we all do. It's it's inevitable. I I have so much. I can't have a conversation about money without (laughs) 
crawling under a table, ask anyone who's ever negotiated a contract with me. Um, but this is, I, I think, something that more people are facing where they're thinking about merging their finances. One person makes significantly more money than the other. I've actually talked about this on the show in the past. And, you know, I'm kind of a pour it all into a common pot and then try not to bankrupt each other and yourselves as a couple. Uh, Irish Catholic, don't think about it too much type. But can people maintain separate finances? Can they keep doing what they're doing and be married where she has her money, he has his money, and they have a joint account for shared expenses? Look, people do this all the time. You know, I, I, I think it's, it's strange. Uh, I, I think it's, uh, it can be a recipe for disaster, if not disaster, at least frustration. But I have a lot of friends uh, who do this. You know, my wife and I, and, and she makes more money than I do, we were of the from the beginning, she was the one who said, well, you know, we're in this together. Let's just pour it all into a bucket. Now, this caller says, you know, she's not going to have kids. She and her, her husband aren't going to be aren't going to have kids. At 26, I didn't think I was going to have kids either. Yeah, I think, you know, <laughs> once you, you know, I have three kids now. Once you add to the complexity of life, I think it becomes uh, a lot more difficult to keep things separate. What are you going to do if you want to take a, a vacation and it costs, I don't know, $10,000. Well, splitting it in half could be difficult for the partner. You know, right. do you have to work something out where she pays 70% and he pays 30 or 80, 20? That becomes uh, a, a bit challenging. What if he wants to, you know, splurge on, I don't know what his hobby is. You know, mine's golf. What, what if he wants to spend 400 bucks on a new putter or something like that? Well, is she going to get upset that he did that? Because, you know, he should be contributing more. It gets really fraught. But the other issue here, Dan, is in some states, she can do whatever she wants. Unless the money is held in trust, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, take California, for example. California is a community property state. So, I mean, she says she's more financially well-off, but, but that's always a general term. I mean, does that mean she has $100,000 in the bank? Does that mean she has $10 million uh, in the bank? Uh, I, I don't know. Presumably, if she had $10 million in the bank, a lot of it would be locked up in trust, and that would protect it. If she has $100,000 in the bank, well, how is she going to keep that separate? Because a community property state like California is going to say, you know what? You've been married for X number of years. We're going to say that everything created during this marriage is split 50-50. And they do that just to avoid you know, the total messiness that may come when somebody gets divorced. Mm -hmm. And this has happened in cases with gigantic amounts of money. There's this Boston real estate developer who bought the Los Angeles Dodgers, I don't know, t 10 years ago. He eventually got divorced. The divorce laws in Massachusetts are completely different from the divorce laws in California. So now he had this, you know, however much the Dodgers were worth back then, a couple billion dollar, you know, franchise, and he was looking at having to split it 50-50. That's just the way the state looks at it. So depending on where she lives, there's only so much control she can exert over keeping their finances separate if, if the marriage goes south. But, but what you're saying about, you know, in answer to your question, how do married people share money? They do it in all sorts of different ways. But this, you know, if you make, you know, if your income is shared income is you make 70% of the money, he makes 30%, you keep it separate, he pays 30% of the mortgage, you pay 70% of the mortgage. Applying that to every single expense, you're going to need an accountant to run that side of your marriage. And it just might be easier if you pooled your resources and treated it as your money. And in the end, you know, she's asked about a prenup. In the end, if you wind up getting divorced and you're in a community property state, just going to get split 50-50 anyway, so 100% Dan, but the, the bigger issue here, again, it's not the money. That's not the money. It's about having those conversations about having, you know, a trust relationship. You know, I have good friends who, I don't know if they still do it, but they have a couple kids and they were honestly splitting things 
you know, if not down the middle, like I'm going to buy this new couch and it's my money so I can buy it. Well, if my house is decorated that way with me buying one piece of furniture and my wife buying one piece of furniture, it'd be a complete, you know, clown show. <laughs> you have to come to these, you know, decisions together. You're entering a marriage. You're not roommates anymore. You're not roommates. You're not dating. You're committing your life to one another, you know, the whole sickness and health thing. So, so what happens if, if, you know, the husband who makes less money, you know, he needs a kidney replacement. Does he have to pay 30% himself <laughs> and she'll, she'll kick in the other 70? I mean, when people start testing the logic of keeping everything separate, uh, it gets a bit, a bit tenuous. Well, well the, the, know, I think what, the, the, the concern often yeah. for the person who makes a lot more money than someone else is that once we merge finances, their partner is going to turn into a spendthrift is going to run through my money. And I think if my advice would be, if that's a concern for you about your partner before the marriage, maybe that's a sign that's not someone you want to marry. Exactly. hundred percent. Like, you know, any of us who've been married for a long time can tell you people don't change. You know, people, you may be able to change somebody. It's, it's all about partner selection uh, in the beginning. So if, if, if the guy is burning through money now, chances are he's going to keep burning through money now. If he's very responsible with money now, why would that suddenly change? Mm-hmm. You know, again, though, I mean, her fears are very real fears, and, and I don't want to downplay them. And plenty of people live this, you know, split life over finances. But I just think it's incredibly complicated, and, and the money becomes a mask for all these other issues that should be dealt with. I mean, clearly, you know, her parents are divorced. She doesn't have good money role models. She doesn't want to end up in that same predicament. She doesn't want to end up l- like they did. Mm-hmm. But that's not about money. That's about having uh, a conversation. It's about, you know, really loving the person you're going to be with, about trusting that person, about opening it up. Again, it's not about who- who's going to pay the electric bill this month. And it's about making choices together. Because if it turns into, you know, here's a choice we'd like to make together. Well, I don't want to make that choice. Okay, I'm just going to spend my money on it. It just seems like an engine for conflict. You know, and every every fucking relationship is an engine for conflict to a certain extent. (laughs) And like whether you should be in a relationship or not is whether, you know, the question is can you resolve conflict and how do you process conflict as a couple? And setting up a financial system where either of you can do whatever you want without having to consult with the other, having to come to an agreement with the other because you can just revert to, well, I'm, you know, you didn't want to get that couch or that putter. So that's my money I'm spending. Oh my God. That just seems like unnecessarily contentious. And it seems to short circuit the conflict resolution process that really does need to be at the heart of a committed long-term relationship. You need to always be refining and exercising that skill for it to survive over the long term. And if you end up getting divorced, you're going to split everything 50, 50 anyway. So it might as well be in the same pot. Right. Uh, otherwise, you're absolutely right. I mean, m- money can become an, an accelerant for all kinds of things, an accelerant for good. You can do more good things more quickly, but it can also accelerate, you know, conflict. I mean, some of the best financial advisors I've interviewed over the years say, look, decide how much money you need to save each year so that you can reach your financial goals, whatever they may be, retirement, buy a house, put some kids through college, whatever. And once you hit that number every month, don't worry so much about everything else. If you got an extra $2,000, an extra $10,000, whatever it is, well, enjoy it. And, and this seems to me like an impediment to in- using money for a means of enjoyment because I just don't think it's possible that the, the spouse who has less 
isn't going to feel like he's on some sort of allowance or mm. he has to ask his wife if he can spend this and not that. Or if he's overly deferential, if she wants to buy the ugliest couch he's ever seen in his life, he says, well, okay, you can do it. It's, it's your money. Or, you know, can I choose one of the, the cushions? Cause that's 30% mine. <laughs> it, it's really, you know, ridiculous when, when we lay it out. But again, that fear that she has is real. I mean, I would suggest that she and her, her husband to be really sit down and talk about the things that, that scare them uh, about our relationship and the things that scare them about spending. How do they want to save? You know, does one want to live in an ultra modern house? Does one other want to live in an 18th century colonial? Who knows? You know, ha- have some of these conversations uh, ahead of time. So, so there aren't surprises five, 10 years down the road when maybe work stressful, maybe a parent is sick, you know, and then you have to really kind of be together as a couple. The one thing we didn't address, the one question she asked, and then we're gonna have to let yeah. go prenups, good idea or bad? Look, people do them all the time. Uh, if the husband is willing to go along with it, it's just saying, okay, you know, the, the money you bring into this marriage, you're going to hive it off. And, uh, you know, it's going to be yours if anything goes wrong. I mean, it's neither a good nor bad idea. It's, it's just a financial instrument, you mm-hmm. know, the question again then is, can she keep all that money separate? Because if she lives in a state where uh, they find out that her, let's say, million dollars that she has, she's been drawing on that million dollars each month to fund their lifestyle, well, that's suddenly, you know, community property, you know, and, and so it, it becomes fairly tangled, fairly difficult. But look, if that gives her peace of mind, if he's willing to go along with it, Let's hope they're married for, for 40 years and this never becomes an issue. And, and, and the prenup is, is the prenup. It's just a piece of paper. And they look back and they laugh about it on their 40th wedding anniversary. Paul Sullivan, Wealth Matters columnist for The New York Times and author of The Thin Green Line, The Money Secrets of the Super Wealthy. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone, especially on your vacation. We appreciate it. Dan, thanks for having me on. I loved it. Hey, Dan. I met a man on an online dating app four months ago. I'm 41, never been married, no children. He's 42. I could tell he was going through a divorce and not really ready to date, even though he didn't say that. I realized the guy was never going to meet up with me, deleted my profile, but also realized that he worked with a friend of mine, a friend of mine who I always knew had a crush on me, but he never asked me about it. He never asked me on a date. He never made a move. He never gave me a chance to reject him. I liked what this person brought into my life as a friend, and I thought I had the situation under control. I don't think it's super unusual to have a friend of the opposite sex who you know is kind of into you but knows it's never going to happen. Eventually, I tell my friend, who I had been hanging out with a bit more in group situations with other single people, that I know this guy. It all comes out. He had kind of figured it out too. He asked for my number. My friend acts really protective of me and doesn't want to give it to him, even though I asked him to give the guy my number. He does. He finally asked me out. We go out a couple times. We have a great time. Both times he asked me first if I ever dated that friend, which I never did. That was on our first date. On our second date, he brings it up again. And I say, no, I would never date him. He says, why not? He's just not my type. I'm not attracted to him. And, you know, even beyond that, I just wouldn't date someone like him. There's things about his personality that don't work for me. I go on vacation for a week and um, this guy is, as far as I know, like 
super into me in a cool way where I think I'm going to see him again. I don't hear from him on vacation. I get back. I feel like he's blowing me off. I kind of try to send him a text that makes it clear. Like, I get that you're blowing me off. Like, hey, I'm busy too. Glad you're good. Have a great week. He then decides to tell me, it's become really clear that our mutual friend has a big thing for you. I'll call you. We can talk about it. And basically, the guy uses that as his reason why he can't date me. What I want to know from you, Dan, (laughs) is what the fuck? Like, what do you think? Obviously, I think that's an excuse. My friends are completely divided, where some of my friends are like, you need to blow up your mutual friend. He meddled. He cock-blocked you. Other friends are like, no, the divorce dad sucks. It's complex. What do you think? I have no idea what happened here. You have no idea. And you never will know what happened. So your only option is to shrug this shit off and not think about it. Didn't work out with the guy you went on a couple of dates with. Maybe your mutual friend interfered or maybe the guy you went on a couple of dates with a big believer in the bro code or he was squicked out and values his friendship with your mutual friend so highly that he didn't want to risk it by dating someone that he had a crush on and he just pulled the ripcord. But you'll never know for sure. And so I think you should not waste too much time thinking about it or bothering sex and relationship advice podcast hosts with it because it's ultimately unknowable. I will say this though. A lot of people have a friend of the opposite sex. Some people have a friend of the same sex that they know are crushed out on them. And it's a fine thing to be friends with someone who wished it could have been more so long as you both have really understood that in your bones and grieved it and the friendship isn't damaging to either of you. It can be very damaging for someone who's carrying a torch to be the friend. It can be tempting consciously or subconsciously for the person who is friends with someone they know is carrying a torch for them, tempting to exploit that friendship because someone who wishes it could be more is often going to make themselves more available to you emotionally than someone who only is interested in your friendship and isn't pining and hoping against hope that maybe your feelings for them will change. And so... I hope that there's nothing exploitative about your relationship with the mutual friend. I hope that you aren't consciously or subconsciously exploiting or leveraging his feelings for you to get more out of your friendship with him than you have a right to expect from a friendship as opposed to a romantic relationship. If you're only hanging out with him when you're with large groups of mutual friends, doesn't sound like you are. But it's something you might want to think about and it's certainly something that I've seen other people without realizing they were doing it, do. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old straight female, though slightly questioning, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, My boyfriend and I have been together for going on four years. Um, We've had some really incredible experiences together, um, both sexually and non. Um, He is 13 years my senior and also identifies as pansexual. Um, A lot of the experience that we've had in the bedroom have been things that he's done before, but have been new to me. And it's been really great to kind of explore with him and get to know my sexuality and what I like. And he's been really honest and really patient with me about exploring my own sexuality and, you know, really comforting to trying things that I might want to try and doing things that he might like to try. My issue is that um, we've been 
talking about more recently venturing into adding other people in the bedroom, both males and females. In my fantasies, I think I would enjoy having somebody else in the bedroom, although I, I know myself and I know that sometimes I converge on a jealous person or I have feelings that I don't know. I just don't know how I'm going to react. Like I said, he's been super patient with me. We've been really open to talking about how I might feel. Um, I just don't want to do something that could jeopardize our relationship. But I know that this is something that he really wants, and I want to be able to do it for him. But I just don't know how I'm going to feel about it. The advice they give the swingers and people interested in cuckolding applies to your circumstance, too. There's a step before you and your boyfriend in bed with someone else, having sex with someone else. That's you and your boyfriend going out to a public place and seeing him flirt with someone else or seeing him make out with someone else. And you also maybe making out or flirting with someone else. You can go to a bar, you can go to a club, you can go to a sex party, you can go to a swingers club with the understanding that nothing is going to happen other than flirting. And then we're going to gauge my reaction. We're going to see how that feels for me. And see how it feels for him if you also flirt or make out on the dance floor with somebody else. Then if you decide to go to bed with someone else, you need to be very clear with each other about what's allowed, what can happen. You have to determine what's on the menu in consultation with your very special guest star and then stick to it. And it may be that at least at first you want to reserve vaginal intercourse or penetrative intercourse if you guys are going to have a male third for yourselves that those first times it'll be what the swingers call a soft swap. No vaginal or anal intercourse, just oral intercourse, mutual masturbation, a little bit of rolling around. Where your very special guest star is kind of a sexy bolster, kind of a fun and sexy prop, but a person who wants to be that for you guys, so they're choosing to play that role for you. Maybe she sits on your boyfriend's face while you sit on his dick. And you and she make out if that's what you guys want to do. But she doesn't sink down onto his dick. She doesn't get penetrated vaginally. No PIV for them. So there's still something held in reserve for you. And that holding in reserve serves two purposes. It has two functions. First, if penetrative sex, if PIV sex is very emotionally significant for you, it puts that to one side and that is just for you. Also, seeing your partner in the moment honor the commitment that they made to you to hold these things, the PIV or whatever else you want reserved just for you, for you makes you feel safer with your partner. It engenders more trust in your partner in these scenes that they are going to prioritize your emotional and sexual safety in such a way that it's less likely to trigger your jealousy. All that said, when you do start playing with other people, if you do start playing with other people, I tell everyone before they have their first three-way, you really can't have a three-way if you aren't comfortable with the inevitable moment when that three-way turns into a two-way. There is always going to be a moment where your partner is focused on that other person and that other person is briefly focused on your partner and you are on the outside. And if you like seeing your partner with other people, being on the outside, not so bad. If this only works if you are constantly included – Talk about in advance that moment when it becomes a two-way, when it's the two of you or me and the other person and we've kind of lost you or you've dropped out, speak up. Say, excuse me, can you guys pull me back in so I don't have a meltdown? Just be direct and honest about what you're feeling even in that moment and ask to be pulled back in. But brace yourself for that moment because 
it comes in every three-way. Every three-way is occasionally the two-way. Hi, Dan. I'm calling because I hate my vagina. And I've hated it ever since puberty. And yeah, I mean, as you know, like whenever puberty strikes, our genitals change and about half of women develop outie vaginas. And since before I even had sex, I heard guys make disgusting comments about, you know, that that means that it goes used, which we know isn't true, but then they just say how it's disgusting and it's ugly and, you know, it's not that porn, perfect porn vagina, which is okay. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, obviously, whenever the opposite sex that you're attracted to is you're hearing such negative things about the way you look, it, it's hurtful. And I've just kind of like, I've tried for years now to, I've tried therapy, I've tried reading books, I mean, I feel like scoured the internet trying to reassure myself. But, and I thought that I would grow out of it. I'm 27 now. I thought that, you know, I'd be this more mature man that would realize that that's just the way that women are and they have more experience. But up until this year, I've heard men, close friends, not realize that um, this is, they'll say something to me. And I'm at the point now where I've said, you know, actually I have a vagina like that. So you might think twice about making comments to women about this because it's, extremely damaging and I guess worst part for me was I was in a long-term relationship for two years and this man made me feel like the most beautiful woman in the world and I'm really going to try not to cry because I know people don't like hearing people cry. I was in a long-term relationship with him and he made me feel so beautiful and I always I just felt like the most comfortable version of myself and I opened up to him about this insecurity and he of course, reassured me and made me feel beautiful. Um, but when we broke up, he was upset and he was just screaming at me over and over again that my vagina was ugly and that no man would love me with the things hanging between my legs. And it just really made me lose all faith when a guy says it's okay that my vagina is an Audi. Um, because I trusted him with my whole heart and then he threw that in my face, which was probably just a reaction to the breakup. But I don't really know why I'm calling a gay man for reassurance at this point because obviously vagina isn't the same. But if you have any advice on maybe how to process this or like how common maybe you hear about this, it definitely helps to just feel like I'm not alone. Joining us by phone to help tackle this question, frequent Lovecast guest, Dr. Jen Gunter, an OBGYN and pain medicine physician and New York Times columnist, also author of the new Vagina Bible, The Vulva and the Vagina, Separating the Myth from the Medicine by Jen Gunter, MD. Hey, Jen, how are you? I'm great, Dan. How are you doing? Uh, I, I'm so good. I actually got a text message this or a, a, a message on Twitter this week from someone saying, "Have you heard of this Jen Gunter? You should have her on the Lovecast." <laughs> well, that's that's awesome. They said that, but you're way ahead of the curve. <laughs> your your first time on the Lovecast was in 2015. You've oh. been a, a long time guest, and we love you, and we love the way that you've blown up. Yeah, it's been a bit crazy, right? Like I'm a 53-year-old woman and I have a book coming out this weekend, a TV show dropping in Canada. Like it's crazy. Congratulations. And all of that because you started telling the truth in public about 
the vagina, about women's genitals, which isn't just the vagina, and really taking on the myths and the magical realists on the left. Yeah, I think it's it's really important to speak, you know, truth to power and to hold people accountable. And I think in especially the way bodies are politicized in so many ways that, you know, facts are just what we need to start with. And I think that's just always been my mission is to get facts out there. And the facts about women's bodies, women's genitalia, uh, we've only just begun in the last couple of decades to do serious research, uh, sexual research into women's bodies, women's arousal, women's pleasure, women's anatomy, that this was neglected. You know, people think, oh, we started really studying human sexuality, you know, 100 years ago or with Kinsey 60, 70 years ago. But it was really only in the last couple of decades that it took off in a serious way. And we began to learn more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, medicine has been steeped in patriarchy since the beginning. And there were many ways that we weren't allowed to study women's bodies because it was considered inappropriate to touch, a, you know, a naked woman unless you were the spouse. And and then, you know, we viewed everything with this sort of a patriarchal eye. The lack of diversity has impacted so many people. And then also, though, too, because many of the structures are internal. Let's get to this heartbreaking call. Yeah. I ache for her. Oh, yeah. I mean, and you know, she's the reason I wrote my book, you know, the, um, I, you know, I dedicated the book to every woman who's had horrible things said to her about, you know, her anatomy or intimate places. And I know that women are told these things because I hear this in the office all the time. And, you know, to hear someone call her, you know, her intimate places, her vagina, ugly and disgusting. And, and, you know, to have it described as an Audi, I think what she must mean is that her labia minora are larger than her labia majora or longer. And, you know, 50% of women are built that way, you know, 50%. Um, and I'm going to give a big disclosure. I'm built that way. It's normal. And to have this idea that, that your labia minora are somehow gross when they're actually part of your sexual response. Like they have specialized nerve endings and, you know, they are, are have erectile tissue. And to, to have that weaponized against you is just cruel. You know, you just said the labia minora have erectile tissue. I sat down and, and, and read your book and thought, you know, I'm probably going to know most of this. I think I know more about uh, vaginas and vulvas than most gay men because I've, <laughs> because I've had to learn, not because I needed to learn or wanted to learn necessarily. I wasn't self-motivated. It's like I'm writing about this. I got to know more about it. Uh, and that I didn't know, that there was erectile tissue in the, the labia minora. I did know that the clitoris was a large, mostly internal organ that had a, lots of erectile tissue, erectile chambers. That I knew. And you know what? Depressing anecdote. I once found myself explaining to a doctor that the clitoris wasn't just the glands. And I looked at him and said, I have a theater degree. How come I know this? And you don't. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, again, some of it is we haven't been able to study it, but it's, um, and I, I don't want people to get the misperception that the labia minora is erectile in the same way, you know, the, the, the clitoris is, but, but it engorges and there are specialized nerve endings and it is very much, I suppose a, a better way to describe it is it's, it's a very, um, receptive sexual organ. And to say that, that we should be diminishing that is, boy, that's kind of a, 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 a destructive message, isn't it? 
It is a really destructive message. Unfortunately, the caller has received this message again and again, most viciously at the hands of someone she thought loved her and had reassured her about the beauty of her genitalia, who then lashed out at her knowing that she was insecure uh, about her genitalia or had been going into this relationship, and he ripped that wound back open. How does she learn to love her body now? Well, I think that it sounds like this caller has developed, you know, a body image dysphoria, you know, that that she has become fixated on a part. And it it sounds like she has um, a lot of reasons to have developed that because there's been a lot of cruel people to her. And I think that um, maybe hopefully finding, you know, a a therapist who has specializes maybe in dealing with, um, you know, body image dysphoria would be a start. And, um, and thinking about, you know, really maybe having a gynecologist who is a compassionate person, you know, walk through with her with a mirror and pointing out what's normal. There is a great art project called um, the Great Wall of Vaginas, although it's really vulvas. And you can see all the different sizes and shapes. And I think, you know, being exposed to that, but understanding like at the core, if someone says something negative about your body to you, a person who loves you, they have the problem, not you. And they don't deserve you. And you absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's just, it's only going to get worse from there. And I mean, that's, you know, I've had people say cruel things to me. I mean, that's, that was about, you know, I I wrote a a column about that for the times called my vagina is terrific. And your opinion about it is not. (laughs) (laughs) And I I wish every woman had that confidence. How do we, how do we control for the way porn shapes, if not people's desires, but their expectations about what's normal? And there is a selection bias at work, unnatural selection at work in, in the porn industry that prefers or only showcases vaginas with of women who don't have longer labia minora. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting conversation because I think every almost every film we see, whether it's porn or not, has very specific sort of phenotypes, right, that are preferred, you know, mm-hmm. uh, straight hair. You know, if you look at newscasters, so many of them have straight hair. And if you look at, you know, um, action stars, they're all built a certain way. So I think it's very easy for us to sort of, I think, think that certain types are normal when they're acting and they're actors. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that there's maybe an interesting sort of more willingness to blend fantasy and reality with porn. Maybe then like, if you see the fast and the furious, you know, that's like, you know, a, a movie. And I think sometimes maybe because we don't talk enough about sex people, then if that might be the only place some people see naked bodies, they maybe have a, a more of a blurred line between fantasy and reality. And straight women are only going to see, may not see many other women's vaginas in real life. They may see them only in pornography. So they're kind of doubly disadvantaged in that they're going to bed with a lot of men. And if the men are younger, maybe the men have only been exposed to porn and haven't themselves seen many vaginas. But women often don't see many vaginas other than their own. And if they get it in their heads that their own isn't normal. And in this caller's case, her vagina is 50% of the, the types of vaginas out there in the world. They don't have a, a broad frame of reference. I, you know, maybe I just feel a you know, certain advantage as a gay man. Like, 
I know how my dick places in the, the you know the giant <laughs> spectrum of dicks because I've seen a lot of dicks. <laughs> yeah. Myself um, personally, not just in porn, and I know they come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes and colors and big scrotums and small scrotums. Right. Uh, and you know, big foreskins or no foreskins or little foreskins. But women who are straight who have male partners may not derive the same comfort from having that broader frame of reference and may need to intentionally expose them to more images of vaginas outside porn. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Because, you know, I never hear women who partner with women talking about shame about their, how their vulvas look. Right. Mm -hmm. So obviously it's, I think that many women get their information about their own anatomy and about sex from the least reliable person who is a young straight man. Right. Like he knows actually like the least, but that's who she's learning it from. So I think the answer is again, education and getting better sex education. Cause I think what happens is sort of the first piece of information we hear about something really, I think sort of biases us to think that that's normal. And so if we could get every sort of young woman or young girl in, you know, grade six, grade seven, grade eight to know what normal is and to have that um, you know, anatomic comfort, I think that would vaccinate her against a lot of the, the things she might hear. So the first time some dude is trying to tell her something, she'd be like, wait a minute, <laughs> I already learned from sex ed or from Jen Gunter that you're wrong. So, right. so you know, all women everywhere have to just, you know, nothing, John Snow, these guys, exactly. shut the fuck up. You know, nothing. You John know Snow. nothing, Jon Snow. Exactly. That's perfect. That's We need to like do a video of that about, like, <laughs> you know, Lavia, you know nothing. Um, and, uh, and let me tell you, this is how it works. Uh, and you're going to do it this way or hit the highway. Um, right. Yeah, I think. And it comes from having confidence. I think for, for uh, women are often taught to be deferential. And if you speak up about what you want with sex, well, then then you're, you know, like loose or whatever negative term society wants to tell you, right? Like women can't have big sexual energy. I'm like, well, yeah, we can. <laughs> and, and, and guys want to be with a woman with big sexual energy. And a woman shouldn't want to be with a guy who doesn't want to be with a woman with big sexual energy. It is about, I think, loving your body. Is it about self-confidence? And, you know, I want to second what you said, Jen, about get a sex positive therapist. I would add, expose yourself to more and different types of women's genitals. And maybe you've seen outside of porn or outside of your own bathroom and fuck the guy who gives you shit about it or don't fuck that guy. Yeah. Don't fuck the guy. Exactly. Like, like, like the one message I wish every young woman knew was if someone says something cruel about your body, get up and leave. Yep. You know, cruelty has no place in intimacy. It doesn't. And once you accept that first cruel statement, it's so much easier to believe the next. Hi, Dan. I'm a 52-year-old hetero man recently married for the second time to a 42-year-old woman. Things are amazing with my wife. The romance, the sex, the friendship are all more than I could have ever asked for. That is, except for four to eight days a month. In the days leading up to her period, she becomes occasionally hostile, difficult, nitpicky and will experience one to two major meltdowns lasting several hours, usually aimed at me over things that would have barely affected her at another time. I did some research and came across the term PMDD, premenstrual dysphoric disorder. It describes exactly what happens to her. Apparently at the cellular level, she's hypersensitive to changes in estrogen. During these low periods, 
Me pointing out that she's suffering from severe PMS or PMDD usually prompts a denial and a gaslighting charge. When the episodes pass, she seems to barely remember what happened and shrugs them off. The flip side of this is disorder is that her hypersensitivity to changes in hormones make her super horny for a good part of the month, beginning the second day of her period, when she totally returns to her normal mood patterns. When she's approaching ovulation, she can't get enough, but then the post-ovulation hell sets in. These swings can cause major, albeit short-term, disruptions to our otherwise wonderful relationship. I'm not sure how to handle her during these times, or myself for that matter. I'd appreciate any advice you might have. And if you wouldn't mind, please don't air this 9 to 14 days after receiving this question, when she'll likely be in a PMDD state. She listens to your show religiously and might fly off the handle. Any other time, she'd be okay. All right, I'm just going to cut to the chase here, Jen. I looked up in your index, or I looked in the index of the Vagina Bible for PMDD or premenstrual dysphoric disorder and didn't find it, and my hunch is it doesn't exist. Well, no, it does. It oh, does exist. Okay. It is. But it's not about the vagina and the vulva. So that's why it's not in there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, oh. But, I, oh, but I did write about it recently for the New York Times. Um, so, uh, yeah. So it is, a, it is a recognized medical condition. And it happens to about 3 to 5% of women. And it's in the period of time, uh, you know, it has to be confined two weeks before the period. But usually in about the five days before where... Uh, you know, irritability or um, hostility or outbursts or feelings, feeling, you know, different, you know, negative emotions interfere with activities of daily living, like interfere with your life. It's not just like, oh, I feel kind of moody or, oh, I need some extra chocolate. Like, like it's, it's actually interfering with your life. So this sounds like this is the perception of her husband. Um, although I'm a little bit concerned that, that he says she barely remembers it. And it's uncommon with PMDD for, for women to not be aware that this is going on. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think that, that I definitely endorse this as a real condition and there are real treatments for it. Uh, and there are many different things to do. But I think the first step is, is some diagnostic accuracy to figure out if this is, you know, just regular PMS, if this truly is PMDD. Or perhaps he's changing his behaviors in some way. Um, you don't know. Uh, so I think that communication about what's going on is probably important. Okay, if PMS and PMDD are real things, the trap is, and the pushback from a lot of women, when they get upset, their partners will say, are you about to have your period to undermine them? Exactly. Or, or, or delegitimize what they're angry about and, you know, blame it on their menstrual cycle. But if it's a real thing and you've noticed this pattern, how do you approach your partner about it in such a way that it, your concerns can't be dismissed out of hand as you just being a misogynist or a sexist? Right. So I think it's very hard to take, you know, a sort of a, a secondhand opinion and say, well, is this true? This is what's really going on with your partner. So, and again, the, the one thing that is just a little bit triggering for me about like, you know, blaming your period is this idea that she barely remembers. But I would say that, you know, what would you, how would you approach your partner if you thought they had a, a different medical condition that they, they were ignoring, right? Like migraines or low back pain mm-hmm. and they wouldn't go to the doctor. So I would sort of say that, you know, to try to approach it more in those terms, to talk about just how you would talk about any medical condition. 
Um, and I think that it sounds like if he's feeling that that there's clearly some relation that he's being a target um, during this time, whether he is or not, I don't know. That it sounds again that maybe they, if if you had a if you had your partner and they had something growing on their leg and they refuse to go to the doctor about it. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Like I care about you and I love about you. I, I love you. You know, I would say, well, then maybe you need to find a neutral third party to talk about, you know, why, why you're not addressing this obvious medical thing. Mm. And, and maybe, uh, maybe a couple's therapist would be able to help them figure out um, if this is a real thing that needs to be addressed medically. Is this a relationship thing? Um, and, and then how to reframe that and move forward. But again, I mean, if she does, if she feels that there's not a problem, I think that there, there needs to be a little bit more information um, coming out to sort of know if that's really what's going on or not. Hi there, Jan, Nancy, and the at-risk tech-savvy youth. My name is Rose. I'm a 30-year-old queer woman calling from the Pacific Northwest. I survived a series of rapes when I was 13 by my mother's boyfriend and I've gotten out of that situation and gotten help for it but I experienced quite a lot of pelvic pain as an adult went to get that figured out got diagnosed with endometriosis none of the endometriosis treatments were working for a while went to a specialist and found out that the rapes that I survived had disfigured my pelvis and the inside of my vagina. Went to see a physical therapist who was able to manually reconfigure my pelvis, um, basically by going in and retracting the muscles um, with her hand and put everything back into place. The problem that this has caused is that it kind of returned my <laughs> returned my vagina to the pre-sexual experience state and it is now so small and so tight that I cannot fuck my husband without considerable pain. All of the mental issues are gone. I'm not getting triggered. It's nothing like that. It's just an incredible amount of pain when I try to have sex. It's too small, it's too tight, it tries to close up after I orgasm, and it's just a nightmare. Um, so if you could help me fuck my husband, um, that'd be fantastic. Can we help her fuck her husband, Jen? Yes, we can almost always help. Um, and there are some things in there that are very, um, that stand out for me. So first of all, she's describing classically, and obviously without an exam, it's hard to know for sure. But it sounds like she's cl describing classic vaginismus. So women will say that, and that's when the muscles that wrap around the vagina, the pelvic floor muscles, the ones that you, um, you know, when we talk about doing Kegel exercises, that those have become overly contracted. So it's not that the vagina is physically too small, it's functionally too small. The muscles are tight. Uh -huh. Yeah. And so people always describe that as either they're too small, too narrow, they can't get their partner's penis in, or it feels like his penis is hitting a roadblock. So that's classic description. And this thing that she mentioned about a disfigured pelvis, that's not a medical term. I mean, we wouldn't use that. And the fact that her, she might've come out with that words from the 
pelvic therapist she was working with before makes me think that maybe she wasn't getting the right kind of physical therapy she needs. Pelvic floor physical therapy working internally in the vagina is actually the treatment for vaginismus. So I'm a little bit concerned that she had this internal physical therapy and then this is what she's left with. So my suggestion would be that probably to get a second opinion from from a, a gynecologist that understands vaginismus and maybe see get a second opinion from another pelvic floor physical therapist about vaginismus and then um, and then to work from there and the, the first line treatment is vaginal dilators where you use progressively uh, larger and larger sized phallic shaped objects basically to get your vagina used to having something inserted. So what happens is women kind of develop this reflex and it's not in their head. It's a physical thing where the vagina is tightening with insertion as opposed to relaxing. This treatment that she describes where the therapist reached into and reconfigured her vagina, I'd never heard anyone talk about something like that before. Is that quackery? Well, so, you, well, you do a lot of unpacking of quackery in your yeah. book. You, you, you rose to fame as kind of the goop slayer taking on quackery promoted by Gwyneth Paltrow's horrible lifestyle site, jade eggs in the vagina and getting your vagina steamed and all these unnecessary idiotic, uh, I don't know what to call them, yeah. um, approaches or treatments or, or accessories for your vagina. Um, have you heard of this kind of treatment, the reconfiguration of a vagina? So that sounds, so those, those words are, are wrong. For a, for a physical therapist to use. So you don't know if a physical therapist said something else and then that's what she heard, okay. you know, because sometimes you say things to patients and they walk out the door and they heard something totally different. And, and, you know, it might be, you didn't communicate it correctly. It's very stressful to hear something, especially if you've got this history of sexual abuse, you know, you might've heard the first three words and then your mind went blank. So there's all kinds of ways that could have happened without it being intentionally incorrect right? Like snake oil. It could have easily just been miscommunication, but it sounds to me like, so some physical therapists who are not maybe as experienced as others would work with someone who has pelvic pain and they would teach them to tighten their pelvic floor. And that's not what you need to do. You actually need to do the opposite. So it sounds like maybe she didn't get the right kind of physical therapy or maybe the right kind of home exercises, or maybe the physical therapy didn't go on long enough. So internal pelvic floor physical therapy with a women's health physical therapist working inside your vagina is totally legit. Um, you know, in my office, when I'm working, I probably refer 15 women a week for it. I'm not kidding. Um, but like anything else, you can go to someone who's really good at what they do, or you can go to someone who maybe doesn't have as much training. The other thing that could have happened is she could have had amazing physical therapy. She could have had the best kind of physical therapy and everything was perfect, but it actually did re-trigger something for her rape wise. And that now that she has this functioning vagina, all of a sudden, you know, that barrier to being really sexual, the physical barrier has now gone. And so maybe, maybe there is also something there that may need to be addressed. Um, and so maybe talking with, with a psychologist who has experience with PTSD um, related to sexual trauma might also be helpful. Where can someone who's interested in finding a pelvic floor specialist, to, the caller, for instance, to get that second opinion, where do they start? Where do you find that kind of specialist? So, well, first of all, if you see a gynecologist who specializes in pelvic pain, they should have, they would, they should know locally who to refer to. So, you know, like I know everybody in the Bay area who does this, you could also go to um, the international pelvic pain society 
webpage. And they actually have lists of providers who are registered through them, and they have both physicians and physical therapists. Um, and so that would be a place to start, too. You could also go to, um, I think it would be the APTA, American Physical Therapy Association. And I am pretty sure on their webpage, they have a, a like if you, you know, navigate through, you, you would probably be able to find a list of, of providers um, through there or some kind of connection that would, le- you know, that would be a leaping point as well. Jen Gunter, OBGYN, pain medicine physician, New York Times contributor, goop slayer, and author of the terrific new book, The Vagina Bible, The Vulva and the Vagina, Separating the Myth from the Medicine. Thank you so much for all the times you've come on the show and when you've uh, been the guest expert in, in Savage Love. I so appreciate you, and it's been such a thrill to, to, to watch your star rise. The world needed Jen Gunter out there. Oh, thank you so much, Dan. That means a lot coming from you. Thank you so much. Uh, hi, Dan. Uh, I'm calling uh, about a question related to wedding etiquette. Um, I live in a me- medium-sized city in the Midwest that's known for being pretty progressive, and um, I will be planning a wedding to my soon-to-be wife. And I'm just wondering about how to find out if wedding venues are cool with hosting a same-sex wedding. Um, we recently found this awesome venue about 30 minutes outside the city that we live in, it's a barn venue, which we both really want. And on the top of their page, it has this really, uh, it's a Bible quote. And um, I'm kind of nervous. And I just don't know how to ask without implying that they are homophobic if they're not. But I also really don't want to give my money to a place that is going to make us feel uncomfortable on our wedding day. The top of a homepage for a wedding venue is a red herring. I think it's a red flare that they're sending up in hopes that same-sex couples will infer what I think is a pretty rational thing to infer, that it's not an LGBT-friendly place. Because places that toss Bible quotes around usually aren't LGBT-friendly places. You're going to have to use your words here. You're going to have to use your pixels and ask them in an email say, We would like to book your venue or interested in coming to tour your venue for our upcoming wedding. We are a same-sex couple. Is that a problem? You say you don't want to give your money, your queer money, to a venue or the owners of a venue or the employees of a venue. We're all homophobic and will wind up making you feel uncomfortable on your wedding day. And that makes me think you live in a state where discriminating against couples on the basis of sexual orientation, denying people goods and services on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity – is illegal and they may have to take your money and welcome you, quote unquote, but perhaps welcome you in such a way that makes you feel unwelcome and uncomfortable on your wedding day. So I would encourage you to just fucking ask them. If you live in a place where it's illegal to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation, they may lie. They're not going to put it in writing. We discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation in a place where they could be sued, run afoul of the law. But they'll probably respond if they're indeed homophobic in such a way that you can read between the lines. Not that I think you need to read between the lines. I don't want to lump all people of faith into one box with the label homophobe on it. But Bible quote slingers, Bible quote placers on the top of their homepagers tend to be homophobic. That's usually their way of letting you know they'd rather not have your queer dollars, have your queer business. But who knows? Maybe they're liberal and progressive people of faith. And when you reach out to them and you tell them 
that you're reaching out because you're wondering if they would welcome you and you're particularly concerned about the placement of that Bible quote because it made you feel uncomfortable or potentially unwelcome. Maybe if they're liberal, progressive, queer, embracing Christians, they will pull that Bible quote down. But you're going to have to use your words. You're going to have to ask. And don't just ask the venue. Ask around. Ask other people that you know who've gotten married. I've had some friends who got married in rural places, on ranches, on farms, in barns, in Montana, in Wyoming, in rural New Mexico, who had wonderful experiences and were made to feel very welcome in those spaces. So who knows? Maybe the people on this barn are going to make you feel welcome, Bible quote notwithstanding. Or if not their barn, maybe somebody else who owns another barn will make you and your queer dollars feel very welcome. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read some of your tweets. Jane R. LeBlanc tweets, listening to so many callers self-hate over questioning relationships with no sexual compatibility makes me sad and angry. Sex is important and you have a right to good sex. Life is so short. Bad sex is a legit reason to end things. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. Couldn't agree more. I say that to people all the time. People have it in their heads that if they prioritize sexual compatibility over other things that you might also want to prioritize early in a relationship, that they're being bad or dirty or sex obsessive in some way. No, prioritize sexual compatibility. Also, particularly important to do so, as I like to say, in those sexually exclusive relationships. Proofrock tweets, why am I allowed to care about people's appearances and be attracted to certain aspects of the person's looks? But if I want a man who's taller than me, then I need to get over myself. Why can't I care about height? But I can say I like men with brown eyes. And finally, Cassandra T tweets, hey, at Fake Dan Savage, just to clarify something, escape rooms only last an hour and the staff are constantly watching you on cameras to monitor where you are in your puzzles to help and for safety. So escape rooms are a great second date idea. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. We're going to have to agree to disagree about that. I don't think it's a good first, second, third, fourth, or 50th date idea to be locked in a room with someone. Yeah, not my idea of fun. All right, if you want us to read your tweet potentially on an upcoming show, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast and now your response calls. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to episode 670, where you told that gentleman that no one can experience NRE in a long-term relationship. I'm here to disagree with your blanket statement that no one can because I have found that balance, although it isn't easy. The way that I accomplish this is by having long-term flings with guys where maybe we take six months off and I'm agonizing about missing them. Then they come back and I feel that NRE again. There are two or three guys in my life with whom I've had this kind of relationship. The longest one has lasted for about seven years. Not to brag or anything, but it is possible if you're willing to go through a bunch of emotional turmoil. (laughs) You might even enjoy it. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to the girl who didn't like the spontaneous dates. And I just felt like giving a female perspective. I don't really hang out at home in my with my hair and makeup done, kind of stay ready. And a second date would be a little soon to kind of feel comfortable showing up without my hair and makeup done. Um, perhaps maybe I'm just too girly, but that would be something that I would save for somebody that I'm more comfortable with and trust. Just because, you know, you want somebody to think you're so cute. And it would be a little soon to kind of just look like a mess. Um, just giving a girl's perspective on that. 
Hi, Dan. I am responding to the caller with the outrage about people refusing to date, quote unquote, short men. I have two points to make. First of all, you said that uh, gay men don't suffer from this problem. And I appreciate that you've been married for a while and haven't been on the dating scene. But as a single gay man who is dating currently and is 5'9", which I don't think is all that short, I can tell you that this kind of heightest behavior is alive and well in gay land, as you put it, um, to the point that some profiles on dating apps Men even specify the exact height to the inch that they want their partners to be, which is always above six feet. So this is a thing that happens. Secondly, to the caller, I too used to be annoyed uh, by this phenomenon and I felt a little self-conscious about it until I chose to look at it as a little bit of a blessing. Because if someone is shallow enough to tell me that they are not interested in me because of my height, then this is a person who will probably have issues with my aging body when that time comes. So based on this alone, they've made themselves undesirable. People just need to realize that those couple of inches don't make a person any less of an asshole. These are not the things that matter. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Tickets are on sale now for the opening weekends of the 15th Annual Hump Film Festival in Seattle, San Francisco, Portland, and for the first time ever, Vancouver, British Columbia, also Olympia, Washington. Go to humpfilmfest.com to get your tickets to those first screenings of Brand New Hump. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Jennifer Gunter on Twitter at Dr. Jen Gunter. And be sure to check out Paul Sullivan's Wealth Matters column in the New York Times. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.